0: section sixty of marion Fay by anthony trollope this librivox recording is in the public domain volume three chapter seventeen lady amaldina's wedding the time came round for lady amaldina's marriage than which nothing more august nothing more aristocratic nothing more truly savouring of the hymeneal altar had ever been known, or was ever to be known, in the neighborhood of Hanover Square. For it was at last decided that the marriage should take place in London, before any of the aristocratic assistants at the ceremony should have been whirled away into autumnal spaces. Lord Lwthyl himself knew but very little about it, except this that nothing would induce him so to hurry on the ceremony as to interfere with his parliamentary duties. A day in August had been mentioned, in special reference to Parliament. He was willing to abide by that, or to go to the sacrifice at any earlier day of which Parliament would admit. Parliament was to sit for the last time on Wednesday, 12th August, and the marriage was fixed for the 13th. Lady Amaldina had prayed for the concession of a week. Readers will not imagine that she based her prayers on the impatience of love. Nor could a week be of much significance in reference to that protracted and dangerous delay to which the match had certainly been subjected. But the bevy might escape. How were twenty young ladies to be kept together in the month of August? when all the young men were rushing off to Scotland. Others were not wedded to their duties, as was Lord Llythal. Lady Amaldina knew well how completely Parliament became a mere affair of governmental necessities during the first weeks of August. "'I should have thought that just on this one occasion you might have managed it,' she said to him, trying to mingle a tone of love with the sarcasm which, at such a crisis, was natural to her. He simply reminded her of the promise which he had made to her in the spring. He thought it best not to break through arrangements which had been fixed. When she told him of one very slippery member of the bevy, slippery, not as to character, but in reference to the movements of her family, He suggested that no one would know the difference if only nineteen were to be clustered round the bride's train. Don't you know that they must be in pairs? Will not nine pairs suffice? he asked. And thus make one of them an enemy forever by telling her that I wish to dispense with her services? But it was of no use. Dispense with them altogether, he said, looking her full in the face. The twenty will not quarrel with you. My object is to marry you, and I don't care twopence for the bridesmaids.' There was something so near to a compliment in this that she was obliged to accept it. And she had, too, begun to perceive that Lord Liffithal was a man not easily made to change his mind. She was quite prepared for this in reference to her future life. A woman, she thought, might be saved much trouble by having a husband whom she was bound to obey. But in this matter of her marriage ceremony, this last affair in which she might be presumed to act as a free woman, she did think it hard that she might not be allowed to have her own way. The bridegroom, however, was firm. If Thursday the 13th did not suit her, he would be quite ready on Thursday the 20th. "'There wouldn't be one of them left in London,' said Lady Amaldina. "'What on earth do you think that they are to do with themselves?' But all the bevy were true to her. Lady Amelia Beaudesert was a difficulty. Her mother insisted on going to a faraway Bavarian lake on which she had a villa. But Lady Amelia at the last moment surrendered the villa rather than break up the bevy and consented to remain with a grumpy old aunt in Essex till an opportunity should offer. It may be presumed, therefore, that it was taken to be a great thing to be one of the bevy. It is no doubt a pleasant thing for a girl to have it asserted in all the newspapers that she is, by acknowledgment, one of the twenty most beautiful unmarried ladies in Great Britain. Lady Frances was, of course, one of the bevy, but there was a member of the family, a connection, rather, whom no eloquence could induce to show himself either in the church or at the breakfast. This was Lord Hampstead. His sister came to him and assured him that he ought to be there. Sorrows, she said, that have declared themselves before the world are held as a sufficient excuse, but a man should not be hindered from his duties by a secret grief. I make no secret of it. I do not talk about my private affairs. I do not send a town crier to Charing Cross to tell the passers-by that I am in trouble. But I care not whether men know or not that I am unfitted for joining in such festivities. My presence is not wanted for their marriage. It will be odd. Let it be odd. I most certainly shall not be there but he remembered the occasion, and showed that he did so by sending to the bride the handsomest of all the gems which graced her exhibition of presents, short of the tremendous set of diamonds which had come from the Duke of Marioneth. This collection was supposed to be the most gorgeous thing that had ever as yet been arranged in London. It would certainly not be too much to say that the wealth of precious toys brought together would if sold at its cost price, have made an ample fortune for a young newly-married couple. The families were noble and wealthy, and the richness of the wedding presents was natural. It might perhaps have been better had not the value of the whole been stated in one of the newspapers of the day. Who was responsible for the valuation was never known, but it seemed to indicate that the costliness of the gifts was more thought of than the affection of the givers. And it was undoubtedly true that, in high circles and among the clubs, the cost of the collection was much discussed. The diamonds were known to a stone, and Hampstead's rubies were spoken of almost as freely as though they were being exhibited in public. Lord Lwifthel, when he heard of all this, muttered to his maiden sister a wish that a gnome would come in the night and run away with everything. He felt himself degraded by the publicity given to his future wife's ornaments. But the gnome did not come, and the young men from Messrs. Bijou and Carcanet were allowed to arrange the tables and shelves for the exhibition. The breakfast was to take place at the foreign office, at which the bride's father was for the time being the chief occupant. Lord Persiflage had not at first been willing that it should be so, thinking that his own more modest house might suffice for the marriage of his own daughter. But grander counsels had been allowed to prevail. With whom the idea first arose, Lord Persiflage never knew. It might probably have been with some of the bevy, who had felt that an ordinary drawing-room would hardly suffice for so magnificent an array of toilettes. Perhaps the thought had first occurred to Messrs. Bijou and Carcanet, who had foreseen the glory of spreading out all that wealth in the magnificent saloon intended for the welcoming of ambassadors. But it travelled from Lady Amaldina to her mother, and was passed on from Lady Persiflage to her husband. OF COURSE THE AMBASSADORS WILL ALL BE THERE, THE COUNTESS HAD SAID, AND THEREFORE IT WILL BE A PUBLIC OCCASION. I WISH WE COULD BE MARRIED AT LANFEANGLE, LORD LITHIFLE SAID TO HIS BRIDE. NOW LANFEANGLE CHURCH WAS A VERY SMALL EDIFICE WITH A THATCHED ROOF AMONG THE MOUNTAINS IN NORTH WALES, WITH WHICH LADY AMALDINA HAD BEEN MADE ACQUAINTED WHEN VISITING THE Duchess, HER FUTURE MOTHER-IN-LAW. But llwddythlw was not to have his way in everything, and the preparations at the Foreign Office were continued. The beautifully embossed invitations were sent about among a large circle of noble and aristocratic friends. All the ambassadors and all the ministers, with all their wives and daughters, were of course asked. As the breakfast was to be given in the great banqueting hall at the Foreign Office, it was necessary that the guests should be many. It is sometimes well, in a matter of festivals, to be saved from extravagance by the modest size of one's rooms. Lord Persiflage told his wife that his own daughter's marriage would ruin him. In answer to this, she reminded him that Lithithal had asked for no fortune. Lord Lithithal was one of those men who prefer giving to taking he had a feeling that a husband should supply all that was wanted, and that a wife should owe everything to the man she marries. The feeling is uncommon, just at present, except with the millions who neither have nor expect other money than what they earn. If you are told that the daughter of an old man who has earned his own bread is about to marry a young man in the same condition of life, it is spoken of as a misfortune but Lord Liffithell was old-fashioned, and had the means of acting in accordance with his prejudices. Let the marriage be ever so gorgeous, it would not cost the dowry which an earl's daughter might have expected. That was the argument used by Lady Persiflage, and it seemed to have been effectual. As the day drew near, it was observed that the bridegroom became more sombre and silent even than usual. He never left the House of Commons as long as it was open to him as a refuge. His Saturdays and his Sundays and his Wednesdays he filled up with work, so various and unceasing, that there was no time left for those pretty little attentions which a girl about to be married naturally expects. He did call, perhaps every other day, at his bride's house, but never remained there above two minutes. I am afraid he is not happy, the countess said to her daughter. Oh, yes, mamma, he is. Then why does he go on like that? Oh, mamma, you do not know him. Do you? I think so. My belief is that there isn't a man in London so anxious to be married as Lithithyll. I am glad of that. He has lost so much time that he knows it ought to be got through and done with, without further delay. If he could only go to sleep and wake up a married man of three months standing, he would be quite happy. If it could be administered under chloroform, it would be so much better. It is the doing of the thing, and the being talked about and looked at, that is so odious to him. Then why not have had it done quietly, my dear? because there are follies, mamma, to which a woman should never give way. I will not have myself made humdrum. If I had been going to marry a handsome young man, so as to have a spice of romance out of it all, I would have cared nothing about the bridesmaids and the presents. The man then would have stood for everything. Lethithil is not young and is not handsome. But he is thoroughly noble.' quite so he is as good as gold he will always be somebody in people's eyes because he's great and grand and trustworthy all round but i want to be somebody in people's eyes too mamma i'm all very well to look at but nothing particular i'm papa's daughter which is something but not enough i mean to begin and be magnificent he understands it all and i don't think he'll oppose me when once this exhibition day is over i've thought all about it and i think that i know what i'm doing at any rate she had her way and thoroughly enjoyed the tasks she had on hand when she had talked of a possible romance with a handsome young lover she had not quite known herself she might have made the attempt but it would have been a failure She could fall in love with a master of Ravenswood in a novel, but would have given herself by preference, after due consideration, to the richer, though less poetical, suitor. Of good sterling gifts she did know the value, and was therefore contented with her lot. But this business of being married with all the most extravagant appurtenances of the hymenial altar was to her taste— that picture in one of the illustrated papers which professed to give the hymenial altar at st george's with the bishop and the dean and the two queen's chaplains officiating and the bride in the bridegroom in all their glory with a royal duke and a royal duchess looking on with all the stars and all the garters from our own and other courts and especially with the bevy of twenty standing in ten distinct pairs and each from a portrait was manifestly a work of the imagination. I was there, and to tell the truth it was rather a huddled matter. The spaces did not seem to admit of majestic grouping, and as three of these chief personages had the gout, the sticks of these lame gentlemen were to my eyes very conspicuous. The bevy had not room enough, and the ladies in the crush seemed to feel the intense heat something had made the bishop cross i am told that lady amaldina had determined not to be hurried while the bishop was due at an afternoon meeting at three the artist in creating the special work of art had soared boldly into the ideal in depicting the buffet of presents and the bridal feast he may probably have been more accurate i was not myself present the youthful appearance of the bridegroom as he rose to make his speech may probably be attributed to a poetic license permissible nay audible nay necessary on such an occasion the buffet of presents no doubt was all there though it may be doubted whether the contributions from royalty were in truth so conspicuous as they were made to appear there were speeches spoken by two or three foreign ministers and won by the bride's father, but the speech which has created most remark was from the bridegroom. I hope we may be as happy as your kind wishes would have us, said he, and then he sat down. It was declared afterwards that these were the only words which passed his lips on the occasion. To those who congratulated him he merely gave his hand and bowed, and yet he looked to be neither fluttered nor ill at ease we know how a brave man will sit and have his tooth taken out without a sign of pain on his brow trusting to the relief which is to come to him so it was with lord llithythel it might perhaps have saved pain if as lady amaldina had said chloroform could have been used well my dear it is done at last lady persiflage said to her daughter when the bride was taken into some chamber for the readjustment of her dress yes mamma it is done now and are you happy certainly i am i have got what i wanted and you can love him coming from lady persiflage this did seem to be romantic but she had been stirred up to some serious thoughts as she remembered that she was now surrendering to a husband the girl whom she had made whom she had tutored whom she had prepared either for the good or for the evil performance of the duties of life oh yes mamma said lady amaldina it is so often the case that the pupils are able to exceed the teaching of their tutors it was so in this case the mother as she saw her girl given up to a silent middle-aged unattractive man had her misgivings but not so the daughter herself she had looked at it all around and had resolved that she could do her duty under certain stipulations which she thought would be accorded to her he has more to say for himself than you think only he won't trouble himself to make assertions and if he is not very much in love he likes me better than anybody else, which goes a long way. Her mother blessed her and led her away into a room where she joined her husband in order that she might then be taken down to the carriage. The bride herself had not quite understood what was to take place, and was surprised to find herself quite alone for a moment with her husband. My wife, he said, now kiss me, She ran into his arms and put up her face to him. "'I thought you were going to forget that,' she said, as he held her for a moment with his arm round her waist. "'I could not dare,' he said, "'to handle all that gorgeous drapery of lace. "'You were dressed up then for an exhibition. "'You look now as my wife ought to look.' "'It had to be done, Lithithel. "'I make no complaint, dearest.' I only say that I like you better as you are, as a girl to kiss and to embrace and to talk to, and to make my own. Then she curtsied to him prettily and kissed him again, and after that they walked out arm in arm down to the carriage. There were many carriages drawn up within the quadrangle of which the foreign office forms a part, but the carriage which was to take the bride and the bridegroom away was allowed a door to itself at any rate till such time as they should have been taken away. An effort had been made to keep the public out of the quadrangle, but as the duties of the four secretaries of state could not be suspended, and as the great gates are supposed to make a public thoroughfare, this could only be done to a certain extent. The crowd, no doubt, was thicker out in Downing Street, but there were very many standing within the square. Among these there was one, beautifully arrayed in frock-coat and yellow gloves, almost as though he himself was prepared for his own wedding. When Lord Liffithal brought Lady Amaldina out from the building and handed her into the carriage, and when the husband and wife had seated themselves, the well-dressed individual raised his hat from his head and greeted them. "'Long life and happiness to the bride of Castle Holboy!' said he at the top of his voice. Lady Amaldina could not but see the man, and recognizing him, she bowed. It was Crocker, the irrepressible Crocker. He had been also in the church. The narrator and he had managed to find standing-room in a back pew under one of the galleries. Now would he be able to say with perfect truth that he had been at the wedding, and had received a parting salute from the bride? whom he had known through so many years of her infancy he probably did believe that he was entitled to count the future Duchess of Merioneth among his intimate friends end of section sixty recording by arnold banner thurmond north carolina